Well, good morning. morning. It's good to see y'all. It's good to be with y'all. Indeed, on my birthday, um, thought I was going to get away with it, and so, but I didn't. Um, Had a conversation after the uh, first service with a church member who came up, and they're like, oh, well, happy birthday. Uh, So how old are you? And and I was, oh, well, I'm, I'm 33. And they looked at me like, wow you look really good for 43. And I was like, no, 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 I said 33. And then they're like, oh, okay. Um, So that's a good self-esteem boost. And then uh, add insult upon injury. Then my wife had to correct me and say, no, 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 you're not even 33, you're 34. It's like, great, so I don't know anything. (laughs) Don't look good, don't think good, all those things. Um, hey, it is, it, is, uh, it is a privilege to get to be uh, here with y'all this morning and get to continue our conversation in the book of John. Um, this has been so fitting for us to start this book, especially uh, coming off of our series um, where we looked at Gideon and looked at identity, um, a great marker of way to, to start our year this year by remembering who we are because of who God has called us to be. Uh, right? This is exactly opposite uh, of the way that society tells us. Culture says it's by what you do earns who you are, and if you do it well enough, then you get to dictate who is God. Um, but this is not so in our, our Christian economy. Uh, Jesus reverses that and says, in fact, it is about who I am, our theology, who God is, shapes who we are, our identity, and then because of that bestowed identity, then we live out our behavior accordingly as he has called us. And so it's been, uh, it's been fitting to then start the book of John right after that, because so much of how John starts, if you remember last week, was entirely focused in on the theology of who God is. This is John's central message throughout the whole book, and exactly what he spends his prologue doing by trying to prove that Jesus is God. And this is his whole aim. This is why he devotes uh, that whole first chapter to be this spiritual lineage uh, to show a genealogy, a spiritual genealogy to prove Jesus is in fact God, also that we can recognize that, and as he makes clear in chapter 20, uh, we can see Jesus for who he is, believe in Jesus rightly, and thus live life. Those are our three words that we need to remember throughout our whole uh, time in this study. Jesus leads to belief, leads to life. And so, uh, again, this morning, we're going to be continuing chapter one, not finishing chapter one. We'll be here for a while, but we will be continuing this prologue uh, that John has. And interestingly enough, we're not going to be focusing quite so much on the theology as much as we're now going to be focusing on some statements of identity. Identity specifically of a character who's thrown into this theological mix and a character whom I think we all uh, hopefully will find by the end of their time together in our conversation something we can relate to in our own identity as we look at the focus on his identity. So let's do this in ways to prepare ourselves for the reading of God's word. I'm going to open and I'm going to close with a prayer. Father God, open our eyes. Gracious Lord, as we turn to your word, we long to know you and to understand life and to be changed. Examine us, Lord, by the floodlight of your truth and only your truth. Amen. It says this starting in uh, John chapter 1. I'm going to back up to verse 14 uh, because it's such a pivotal verse. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of only the son, of only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. 
For from his fullness we all have rejoiced, received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Let's pray again. May the word that we have received, Lord, be planted deeply in our minds and in our hearts. Help us not walk away and forget it, but to meditate on it and obey it. And so build our lives upon this rock that is your truth. Amen. So this is the continuation of the prologue into our first introduction of a character. Uh, But this character introduction here doesn't come only after the prologue because we've been introduced to this character throughout the prologue. Actually, kind of awkwardly so. If you go back and you, and you look at it, the text kind of jumps in and out of this declaration about who God is, kind of with this random kind of awkward aside where John's just kind of thrown in there and then kind of removed to get back to the main subject. This is abundantly clear in the original language, uh, but even for us, some of the awkwardness uh, still exists. I mean, for instance, look back at how we meet John the Baptist in, the, in, uh, in verses six through eight when he's first introduced to us, if you had read verses four and five, it would, it would seem more naturally just to skip over that and go right into verse nine. If so, it would read like this, in him was life and the light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. True, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. This would have been a natural progression and actually the language there is tied very specifically with the light that they're supposed to draw that sentence all together. But that's not how John presents it. Rather in the middle of this thought and kind of just jumps in there and kind of says, oh yeah, and there was this guy named John and he was a witness sent by God. I think this is an important uh, hermeneutical principle for us all, a way that we can remember how we study God's word. Um, We want to make sure that we let uh, the author say what he intended to say the way he meant to say it. We may want to polish that up and make it more clear. We may want to drive our attention not towards that awkward interjection, but towards the light, the overarching conversation. Uh, We may want to do that, but to do that, I think, is to miss um, the Apostle John in his clear and purposeful writing. He's making this kind of an awkward aside. He's making this an abrupt interjection into the conversation because he is highlighting for us a key in which he doesn't want us to miss, which is, again, this character, John the Baptist. 
John Piper says this, and I thought it was interesting enough I would read it to you. Our job is not to improve John's literary art by telling him how he should have written more smoothly. Our job is to penetrate his literary purposes, and by doing that, so to penetrate his theological purposes, his spiritual purposes, his evangelistic purposes, and any other purposes he has by God's inspiration, so that by hearing and understanding, we might believe on Jesus, the Son of God, and have life in his name. I thought this was a key insight um, from John, who is teaching on John as John is writing about John. We've got a lot of Johns going on uh, here this morning, but I think that it is clear that what we see is that the Apostle John, the writer here, is being intentional in how he is awkwardly moving into these snippets, in the, even in the prologue, about this character, John. And we can't go into the witness section about John without understanding these primary assertions. We've even again read this morning, um, in verse 15, we have an abrupt interjection. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. Now, a lot of our, the ESV, which we're reading from this morning, a lot of modern translations have that as a parenthetical sentence. It is so obvious in the original language that this is kind of an awkward fit in the side sentence that they want to say, well, surely this is parenthetical. Um, that actually, so that you know, in the, in the, for those who don't, the Greek um, doesn't have punctuation marks as such. In the Greek, it's all just one fluid thing, but the language is so abrupt that this changes that commentators want to throw in those parentheticals to say, well, the, the language gets real awkward, so surely John's just trying to make an aside here about John the Baptist. I think he is, again, because he's, he's not just, you know, the, the Apostle John's not just the guy who enjoys that awkward moment, Right? We all know those people. Um, we all have friends like that who, who thrive on making situations awkward, uh, who enjoy what, when everybody else is uncomfortable. Um, there's a couple of elbows going right now in the room that you can't see. Um, I was even with, uh, at lunch this week with a group of guys, and, um, and one of them was recounting a story, um, a friend of mine named Grant, who was recounting a story where he had a, a college project with um, another girl, uh, and it was just the two of them who were on this project together. And so they had met up uh, at, his, at his house to, to work on this project, and Grant being very careful and mind, mindful of how he interacts with this young lady, with them both being single, um, his roommate shows up and uh, walks into the room, and so Grant naturally introduces him to uh, the young girl, in which uh, the roommate replies, oh, Grant's told me so much about you. It's great to finally meet you. He talks all the time, and then leaves the room. Grant didn't really talk about him, but Colin loves the awkward moment, so he made it as awkward as possible just to enjoy it and just to leave. I don't think the Apostle John is trying to make us feel as awkward as possible and then just leave us with these random interjections about John the Baptist. I think what the Apostle John is doing is he's trying to make an identity known, an identity we don't miss, a character that is, that is important to this story. In this whole prologue where it is entirely spiritually focused about uh, God choosing the word and demonstrating that word as the manifestation of himself in the Son, in this whole spiritual genealogy, we get one man, fully man, not just God, who's both miraculously fully man and fully God, but we get one man who's introduced to us as, an, as a pivotal role uh, in this story, which is John the Baptist. Now, 
We've mentioned this before. John doesn't actually label him John the Baptist. Um, John simply refers to him as John, probably because there's nobody else he's trying to make clarification against in the rest of, of his gospel. Whereas the other gospel writers are including John the Apostle and John the Baptist, so they're the ones who use the titles to separate them. Uh, John doesn't do that. John refers to himself as uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved, or sometimes says, um, maybe more mysterious, the other disciple. Uh, but So he doesn't have to differentiate the difference, but if I think if he did differentiate the difference... If he did want to give a title to John, uh, we, it isn't that the Apostle John sees John the Baptist. You know, he'll mention baptism and talk about baptism, but though the baptism itself, even what John's ministry is, points to him as a totally different role. I think he, the character, as John the Apostle would call him, is John the Witness. Because that's John's role here. That is his God-given identity. This is the title he bestows as witness. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. Verse 15, John bore witness about him. This is the first three of actually 14 times this word witness is used in conjunction with John the Baptist. I think the Apostle Paul really wants us to make sure we don't miss this with as repetitive as he is being here. John the Baptist is really, his identity is found in the bestowed identity of John the witness. Jesus is God, and God chose John to be the witness to Jesus. I think another key fact that we must identify about John the witness is that John the witness is sent. John doesn't get to be the witness because of any merit of his own. It's not because John's got this whole life figured out. It's not that he's just ultimately seen as so pious uh, that he would remove himself in the wilderness and eat weird things and dress weirdly, that he's so good at doing all that, that that he has earned the title of being the witness. It isn't that he comes from some great family lineage, or it isn't that who uh, his citizenship is or where he comes from. It isn't any of those things that earn John the title of witness. It is simply that witness is bestowed to him. His identity is given to him. He is called the witness. There is a man sent from God. God the Father sent Jesus, and so God the Father sends John. I think this is a key understanding um, that we can relate to even in our own identity as we compare our identity against John the Baptist's identity. Because as John is the witness, so too we know we have been called witnesses. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Again, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We stand as the ambassadors. We stand as the witness. It is God who is the one who is working mightily, but he is choosing to do so through us. We'll get to more of that again when I think that two key concepts for application, that as we compare our identity as witnesses with John the Baptist or John the witness, his identity as a witness I think two keys that are going to help us this morning is uh, the first, knowing that our witness is a necessity. Our witness is necessary. And then the second point, uh, our witness is as a not. 
Now, that's kind of not, again, grammatically correct, and maybe I'm drawing upon the spirit of John this morning by trying to make something a little bit awkward so we can be a little bit more memorable, but I think we'll get to that here in a minute. There's two key things I want us to walk away with. Is one, our witness is necessary, and then our witness comes from being a not. We'll get to that here in a moment, but let us start with the first, our witness is necessary. Everything that we've established last week in this passage is still ringing true, right? The word has been called upon, the, the rationale, the logos, the, the, the created agent of God in speaking, this still exists. We know that this word is clearly identified as Jesus. That's why we started back in verse 14. The central point, if you miss that, then you're going to miss the rest of the book. The word, the logos, the reason for everything is Jesus Jesus has been called God. He has been called the creator of all things. He has been called light and life for all men. These are things that we know are ringing true of Jesus. So it would seem apparent that if all the priority is given to Jesus, if all the sovereignty and power is focused in on Jesus, well, then naturally we would think, well, then it would be to Jesus to witness about himself. And whereas, in fact, he does that later in the book, you'll see Jesus quote to his father as witness as he bears witness of his father. But there is something more beautiful that goes on there. Even though Jesus clearly would be the one who's created life, thus he'd be the one who could give life. He's the one who paid the price for sin, thus he'd be the one who could forgive sin. He's the one who lived righteously, thus he could account his righteousness for us. Thus he is obviously the one who's moving in here and accomplishing all these things, yet he chooses to use us as witnesses, as vessels, as ones who proclaim, ones who can say, because of what he has done in our lives, because of who he is to me, what he has accomplished to me, I now then get to go and tell others, this is him, and he can do those same things for you. God chooses witnesses, chooses to send witnesses to proclaim his gospel. It is his gospel to save, but it is us who get to be the vessels of that gospel to the world. We are necessary in this equation. We are a necessary part as witnesses to accomplish what God has sovereignly placed out before all of humankind, the offering of the saving of his son, now, what is dangerous about saying that God has, has chose, chose us about uh, as witnesses is it may overemphasize us. Now, again, we can't lose the fact that there is some role that we play as chosen ones. This is why even as Jesus prays later in chapter 17, um, how does he foresee that we will come to faith and salvation? There we'll have the great high priestly prayer that we'll run across where Jesus prays for even us. And how does he see that salvation comes to us? It's in his own words. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. It is the word, their word, their testimony, their witness. This is again why the apostle John wrote this entire book in chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written. These are an account. This is a witness. This is made uh, made kind of pr- present, here presented for you so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ. And it's amazing here, again, that in this, in this expression of power, he chooses us to herald it. 
But the danger of, of making too much of ourselves is, is we don't want to come across making God dependent on human work. It isn't that God needed us to accomplish the proclamation of his power. It isn't God needed us to be a witness so that others would actually rightly come to him. He didn't need us in those things, which is all the more beautiful, beautiful of our loving God. It is that he chose us. He didn't need to do these things, but he chose to send us. Again, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Jesus tells his disciples later in John, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And in fact, Jesus' words recorded in Matthew chapter 9, and he even says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is the God who saves and sends. He is the Lord of the harvest. We're not denying that. He, in fact, it is his harvest. He's the one who's done all the work. He's the one who reaps all the glory. But yet we get to be the laborers because he chose us. And it isn't our harvest. It isn't that we get to take credit for any of it, but we get to participate in the harvest. Where we didn't have a place to even be there for the harvest, we now get a role, not just in receiving the harvest, but participating in the harvest. This is the graciousness of our God. And I'll pause and I'll take a note because I think it's appropriate here, even as we've seen this command so vital to the sending of witnesses, Jesus himself gives us another command, not just being the laborers, but also to pray for the laborers, to pray that the Lord of the harvest sends out laborers. So let us do that as a pause this morning. Father, it is amazing that you would choose to give yourself to save this world. And it is a deep regret. And I hold that there are those in this world who do not know you as Savior. Please, Lord, send men and women who love you into the world to witness of you to those who need you. And even for us in this room, may we, like Isaiah, look to you and say, here I am, send me. And all God's people said, amen. Is an important note from our text about John's identity as a witness and our own bestowed identity as a witness. Our witness is necessary. And for us to not participate as the witness is for us not to participate as the way God has intended us to live. For us to not go and make the proclamations of for the Lord is for us to choose a life less abundant than the one that he's wanting to give to us. Our witness is a necessity. But our witness is also as a not. I want to highlight a couple things. Look back down in verse 8. John has been identified as the witness. He's received his identity. And then what does the apostle John want to immediately go and clarify that with? He is not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. John just so is John the Baptist or the witness is so randomly interjected here into this conversation about light. Um, John the apostle takes a moment and says, no, 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 make sure don't 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 this. John is not the light. He is a not. He's bestowed his identity, but it is very clear what that identity is. It is the witness. It is not 
the source of the light. I wouldn't have made such a big deal of this, and I probably wouldn't have made it a point in and of itself, except for the fact that we'll run into this four times, again, into this, into this little section in this gospel. This constant kind of picture or theme of not. Again, look down in verse 19. It says this, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem to ask you, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. There can't be much more clear and yet confusing way to say this. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed he is not the Christ. I am not the Christ. And if that explanation wasn't clear enough, keep going. Verse 21, and they asked him, what then are you, Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. I am not. This is a witness where John realizes clearly his role as a witness is to identify who God is and who he is not. At least anybody think it is about him. At least anybody think it's about what his ministry can accomplish or what he is doing with his proclamation of Christ. I think there is great humility in John's words that we find in this passage. One where John rightly sees who he is in relation to a holy God. I think this humbles him. And I think we see this humility presented to us. Verse 22, so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he says, I am simply the voice. I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. I'm not the guy. You need to make straight your path, but not because of me, not because I'm here. I'm not the guy. I'm just the voice. I'm just telling you about that guy. He's the one you need to not miss. He's the important one in this. I'm not there. I'm just the voice. It goes on and says in verse 25, they asked him, well, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? They're getting this message clearly, right? They got it. You're okay. You're not Christ. You're not Elijah. You're not the great prophet. Then who are you? Why are you baptizing here? What, what at all do you have to do with this then? John answers him again humbly. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am, I am not worthy to untie. John says, I'm the only, you're right. I am not all of those things. You've heard me clearly right. So why am I here? Why am I baptizing? Because there's one among you you don't know. You don't need to know me. I'm here to baptize and to proclaim you need to repent of your sins because you need to know the one who can take away your sins. And that one, his sandal, I'm not even worthy to untie it. I am not that worthy. There's a humility here, I think, in John. I'm only baptizing here so that you know who the guy is. I'm not the guy. Our witness as the not. John's proclamation to us. I am not the light, verse 8. I am not the Christ, verse 20. I am not Elijah. I am not the prophet, verse 21. I am not worthy to untie his sandals, verse 27. Harkens to the psalmist of when he writes in the 115th Psalm, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. It is not about us. It is about you. 
The Apostle John will illustrate this further. As John the, the Baptist, John the Witness even explains later on in verse, um, verses 28 of chapter 3, he says, You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have, sent, but I have been sent before him. And then he gives us this great illustration. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. What greater words of humility that he must increase so that I must decrease. The bride, as he knows, the friend of the bridegroom, uh, he's not the one who takes home the bride. It is the bridegroom who has that honor and is the one who provides in that moment. And so he, John sees it is clearly inappropriate for the friend of the bridegroom to get excited when the bridegroom comes because it is the friend of the bridegroom who plays the part of the equation of taking the bride home. No, that's not how it sees. That's not why the, bride, the friend of the bridegroom is excited. Why is the friend of the bridegroom excited? Because when he hears the bridegroom's voice, he knows that he has fulfilled his purpose which was not to point to himself, but to point back towards the one taking the bride. There's another way that uh, I actually grew up kind of hearing um, the same illustration or comparison was not actually at a wedding, but was rather taking place out the, on the street as beggars. When I, when I think about that fact that we are a witness by necessity, but we are witnesses of the not, um, I think back to uh, uh, my pastor, who I grew up listening to um, as my family uh, uh, was at uh, Plano Bible Chapel, Chapel, and for the, all of my upbringing, um, there was only one pastor there, named, a guy named Pastor Lewis, um, and he always would talk about it, and he'd often cl- finish his sermons by um, uh, expressing to us that he was just the beggar, but he knew the bread maker. And I always attributed that to him. I actually, for the longest time, thought the quote was Pastor Lewis's quote. But actually, then when I got into my undergrad studies, I learned that it wasn't him. It was somebody um, from the um, uh, late 1920s, 1930s, a guy named D.T. Niles. And he was famously quoted to say this, um, either about Christianity or evangelism, but one in the same. He says, Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. This is us as witnesses. I'm, I'm not the bread maker. I'm not the bread. All I am is I'm a beggar. I've known what it is to have an empty stomach. I've known what it is to be hopeless without bread. And I tell you great news as fellow beggars, I've found the bread. Let's go and let's partake of the bread. We are just simply beggars telling other beggars where the bread is. Sometimes they don't know that they're beggars. And that's what we need to tell them. Look at me. I don't have it all put together. I don't have hope in this. But I know the guy who can. And when it's falling, around, falling apart around you, look out and call upon him. This is us as the beggars. It is grace that I have a full belly. And it is grace upon grace that I get to go and tell the world why I have a full belly. And this is one of the great things. It is grace that Jesus sent was sent as a savior. And I think it is grace upon grace that we get to participate in the proclamation of that saving world work to the world. Grace upon grace. 
Now, as we close our time together, I do think it is appropriate for a confession. A confession from me to you that I invite you to join in on because earlier when I had prayed about the laborers being sent, I prayed citing a deep regret for all those who don't know Jesus. And my confession is, is that while I know that to be true in my head, intellectually I can every day attain to that. And I, every day that you would ask me, Yes, I know that there is those in the world who are unsaved and I am filled with regret. Intellectually, I attain that so easily. Behaviorally, though, I confess, I don't always live that out. I don't always carry myself with the weight and the burden, the necessity of me as a witness to go out and proclaim to them. Sometimes I just get comfortable. Sometimes I get forgetful. Sometimes I think of myself as just a guy with a full belly sitting back and enjoying getting to be with the bread maker. Forgetting that the whole reason for my full belly is not for me to sit there, but for me to go. And that I truly do confess. And it is my prayer, and I hope for anyone who needs this same prayer that you will join with me in saying that remind me of the truth that I know in such a way that leads me to actions. I mean, understand that there are those who don't know Christ, and I, I am a part of the plan to go tell them. Don't ever let me become so complacent that I forget my role. And so that same thing is for you this morning. Maybe it is that you're sitting here and you're thinking, um, you know, I, I don't, this whole witness to the bread, I don't know if I've even taken the bread. Maybe you're still sitting here and you know, you've never taken that moment to confess that it is your sin that separates you from God and you can't do anything about that but to cry out to him and say, Lord, save me. If you're a beggar here with your life crumbling all around because you've tried to do it in your own strength, then give it to the Lord. He's the only one who can do that. Maybe you have received, as a beggar received, the bread. And maybe as we move into this time of invitation, you need to be praying to the Holy Spirit, convict me to live a life rightly of the identity that is bestowed upon me. Not as a poor witness, but as one who is empowered by you to be a good witness. This is our identity. Maybe it is the, our prayers that we just live out our identity better. Maybe it is the specific, even dealing with the Holy Spirit, point into my life how I am a witness and I'm blind to it. That conversation with a coworker this week, that lunch I have with another student, that opportunity at a restaurant with a waiter or a waitress, the time I'm pumping my gas and not wasting it, don't let me miss the opportunity to participate in your great work as a witness because this is the full life we were designed for and this is the full life he wants to give us. Or maybe you've talked to a welcome home team and, or Lance and, and you want to come and you want to say, I want to be a witness with this group of witnesses and you want to join this morning. Whatever it is and however you need to, uh, need to respond, this is the time that I invite you to stand, to sing, to kneel, to pray, to do whatever it is to deal um, with the Holy Spirit and what God's impressing in your life. So y'all go ahead and do that now.